welcome to this week's sermon from C3 Church Narara. We hope you enjoy this message from Pastor Chris Brown. For more information or to contact us, visit c3church.narara.net. Praise the Lord. Uh, I want to talk to you about the blind spot, and that will hopefully become evident as we go through. What I mean by that, I want to look at John chapter 8, and this is a uh, passage telling uh, an incident that happened when Jesus was here, and it says, At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts. This is Jesus, not appearing spiritually but physically because it's recording his journeys around um, Israel at the time when he was here on earth. So Jesus was there in the temple, all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. So just stop there. Perhaps you're aware. The Pharisees, the teachers of the law, religious leaders, but had walked away from God and held on to their traditions at the expense of a relationship with God. So they'd become we use the term pharisaical, someone who's bound up with religious duty and laws and forgetting their first love and their relationship with God. So Jesus had been coming and rattling the cage because he was talking about love and grace and forgiveness and that he was the son of God and they were freaking out that he was a blasphemer and of course they eventually caused him to go and be executed and crucified Um, and so they're looking for a trap and then look at the rest of verse 6 reading on it says but Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger when they kept questioning him he straightened up and said to them Let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin and a wonderful story so there's three people or three groups of people that we will look at here the first one is the woman and now we're told that she's caught in the act of adultery so this was a shocking thing much more shocking back then as it is considered today so she's humiliated firstly but more than that she's now preparing to die a painful death because their religious laws Um, from the time of Moses onwards, uh, required such a person to be stoned to death. Now, when I was a kid, we had stone fights and there was some bloodshed and a few bruises with the evil Trask brothers uh, in our neighbourhood and other randoms that at times things would get a little heated and would start by throwing stones across one side of the road to the other and it would get a little closer and a little bigger stones and one day I copped a brilliantly 
dropped big rock underneath a cliff. We were searching, we were in the bush and these kids were, we were out to get them and it was like the Lord of the Flies. It was awesome, you know, it was like real living on the edge. And this kid, um, uh, there was a big long cliff face and there was a rock ledge and I was walking underneath it and he just must, all his Christmases had come at once. He says, little, little brownie. And he got, uh, uh, he got this great big rock and he just must have got it as I walked brilliantly and just boom. And I'm walking along, bam. And the next thing, all I see is red. The whole world was red. And I remember I just had blood streaming down my face. My older brother just sent me home. Uh, and, uh, you know, he kept, well, he was on the front lines. He had to keep fighting the fight, you know. Um, and, uh, and I just remember running, just thinking, I'm probably going to die. I just remember seeing blood everywhere and red all over here. But my mum was a nurse. She stitched me up. It was all good. Sent me back into the battle. Um, no, I think I went to the doctor and got stitches. Uh, but to the best of my knowledge, we didn't kill anyone. No one died. But here, this was a means of execution. You know, they, they had enough stones with enough force and enough people and enough anger and resentment and... And, and desire for judgment that they would kill people. And that's what she's facing. Uh, and of course, some people have commented, well, what about the man? Where's the man? Well, he got away. But that's not to alleviate her from her wrongdoing. It's not to say she's innocent just because the bloke's not there. Um, and so in God's sight, of course, this, this is wrong. We'll come back to the woman. Uh, let's look at Jesus. Of course, Jesus reveals his heart towards sinners because he shows a heart of compassion that doesn't want to condemn the woman. And also notice how Jesus is aware of the trap the Pharisees are trying to set for him because under Jewish law, the woman, the, the, the woman I should say, was guilty. But under Roman law, a person could only sentenced someone to death if they were a judge approved by the Roman government and Jesus wasn't in that position. So here's the tension. If Jesus agrees that the woman should be stoned, then he'd be breaking the law of the occupying Roman government. And he'd also be going against this message that he'd been bringing about mercy and grace and forgiveness. But at the same time, if Jesus said, oh, well, you should let the woman go, then he'd not be upholding the Jewish law, which by birth as a Jew, he was required to follow and respect. So what does he do? Classic, isn't it? He doesn't play into their hand at all. He doesn't respond directly to them. They say, what do you say? They demanded. <laughs> I love it. He doesn't say anything. Uh, he just stoops down and writes in the dirt. Why? And what did he write? Some have suggested that he's writing with a prophetic word of knowledge, the names of the Pharisees. Perhaps the sins that they had committed. Perhaps if the woman was a prostitute, as some have supposed, perhaps he was even writing the names of the prostitutes that some of the Pharisees had visited. We don't know. This is what people have postulated. Some, some people say he was just doodling and annoying them. I kind of like that one. Just, you know, just drawing cartoon pictures and just, you know, getting them wound up. I liked what was portrayed in the film, The Passion of the Christ. Um, slow motion, dramatic music, you know, but it showed Jesus drawing a line in the sand. Maybe that was 
what he was doing to support his statement about whoever is sinless, then you can figuratively step over the line, if you like, to cast the first stone. We we don't know what he wrote. Um, It doesn't really matter. But whatever it was, it gave the Pharisees a chance to just slow down and to think about what was going on. It just took the heat out of the situation. You know, mob rule is a scary thing. And so rather than a stoning slash lynching slash, you know, quick judgment, it, 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 just, it just gave them time to consider the situation. And then when Jesus did speak, he effectively declared a mistrial because he says to them, well, if you're without sin, then that's fine because then you're in a position to judge. You're in a, a you know, a a perfect position to make the correct judgment. But of course, if you're with sin in your life in any way, then you're not really in that position. So you shouldn't really go through with it. And, uh, and so that gets us to the third group of people. Let's talk about the Pharisees because they were so ready to convict and condemn. Uh, and then Jesus, of course, turns the tables on them, forces them to take the focus off the woman and then onto themselves and to their own sin. And don't you like it? One by one, it says, the oldest first. Here's, let's hear it for old people. Because, you know, sometimes young people, listen to me, um, you know, we can learn something from older people because not always, but usually and often, hopefully, older people have learned some things and they've figured it out. And the older guys thought, mm, he's got a point. I better get out of here. And off they go. And then people one by one slink off, realising their own sinful state. So what had happened? Well, Jesus had held up a mirror to them, hadn't he? He had shown them what they couldn't initially see for themselves. He had pointed out their blind spot. And this is what I want you to think about with me today. Because do you know that we've all got a blind spot? physically and literally in our eyes. I know this because my eye doctor has shown me. I, uh, thanks to a tennis ball injury 30 years ago, have the privilege of seeing one of Australia's top ophthalmologists on a regular basis. He's amazing. He's got degrees just lining the walls. He's, he's a professor and he's written papers and gone all over the world. He's an amazing guy. He's also a Christian. And, uh, and so he's very enthusiastic when I see him uh, because he loves to teach me every six months or so whenever I go about all the intricacies of the eye and uh, what a wonderful creator God is, which is great, except that it just holds up all the patients. He's the longest waiting doctor. I try and get my appointments early in the day uh, so I don't have to wait too long. But if you don't get an appointment at eight, I mean, eight means you get in at nine and you're in there for hours of tests and it's annoying. But if you have an appointment at 12, you ring up when you get to Chatswood and basically say, is it worth... No, no, so you're going to do shopping for like two hours. You know, he's running... Because he loves to talk. He's a wonderful man. But particularly with me, we, you know, start talking about the Lord. And anyway, so he tells me... Uh, and so I have to go through all these tests, you know, and they keep my eye working and and then he sits down and, and years ago they just have a few pieces of paper they'd print out now it's all on computer screen all in full color all these cross sections and diagrams and he's got the mouse out and he's so excited and look at this and he goes on about the the macula and the retina and the obscuration of the visual field of the intercorneal ring and the trabecular miscus of the iris and the vitreous plasplana of the optic nerve and I just wrote those terms down I don't know what any of them mean but I just know that they're the things that he talks about and I just sit there and feign understanding and nod um, 
but I just forget most of it. Uh, and then, but, but what I do remember, what he showed me recently in one of the tests, there was a black spot in the field test of my good eye. So you'd be pleased to know that I've got one eye that works. Where are you? There you are. There you are. Right. Um, and uh, uh, that's why I stay behind the pulpit because I can't trust if I get too close. Um, he, he, uh, he sh- so I've got this black spot in the good eye and I'm like, oh, hang on, what's the problem there? Is that, a, is that an issue? He goes, no, no, that's just your blind spot. I said, what do you mean? I thought that was just a figure of speech. He said, no, 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 it's a real thing. We've all got that. I'm like, what? And so then he uh, explained to me, and Professor Brown here has a very simple diagram uh, for you. Hopefully you can follow this. Um, So look, there's your eye. And uh, so you've got the lens, the retina, the optic nerve, and the blind spot. And so the retina captures images. It sends messages to the brain that it catches, you know, the images come through the lens and then uh, there's all these nerve cells that the retina sends the message to the brain, to the brain. but see the junction where the retina gets to the optic nerve, that's the blind spot because there's actually, there can't be any nerve cells right at that very spot. So there's no message going to the brain for that particular spot where the message would come in from the iris and um, from the, the, the lens. And, and, if, and it varies from person to person, but it's generally, apparently, you know, kind of near the horizontal, and you can figure it out and look for it if you do a few tests. So I just was, uh, I was just impressed uh, that, um, I, I don't know, maybe you all knew that, but uh, anyway, we all have physical blind spots. My point is, similarly, we all have spiritual blind spots, and this can be a problem. These are areas of our life that cause problems that we either can't see or choose not to see. And that's what the Pharisees were suffering from because they were hypocritically accusing this woman of sin without being able or willing to recognise their own sin. And this is <laughs> the human condition, sadly, that we've all got a propensity to ignore our own sin, to downplay our negative behaviours, to deflect or blame or defend ourselves even when we're in the wrong and desperately want to go looking for fault in others and It's not good, to put it mildly, because sin left unrecognised or ignored or undealt with causes problems. In fact, it causes all the problems of the world that we have today. And personally, it prevents us from being in close relationship with God. You may know this scripture, Romans 3 verse 23, and it says, all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. So All of us sin, all of us make mistakes, and in doing so, all of us fall short. Some translations say all fall short of God's glorious standard. So He is glorious, He is holy, He is perfect, we're not. And so there's no way we can actually approach Him and be with Him and be connected and in relationship with Him in our own doing. And so that's a problem. So I hear you say, all right, great, I'm a sinner, I get it. But... (sighs) We can recognise sin in a general way, but the blind spot deal is for those things that we really just find too annoying or maybe too painful to recognise. Specific things that we can just gloss over and say, oh, I'm a sinner. But if, if, you, know, you can't fix a problem until you identify it. 
And so, you know, maybe it's the, 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 the little white lies or that anger issue or lust or the propensity to gossip. Or for some people, it's laziness or others, it might be a, a refusal to admit fault, a, a, an, a, an offence or bitterness that we're carrying with our lives or whatever it needs to be dealt with because the blind spot analogy, uh, well, if you find that one too scientific, which I do, could hardly follow what I was saying, even though I'd, you know, <laughs> considered it. Um, then let's try sports. So rugby, the Christian game, because it's the game they play in heaven, uh, has what they call the blind side. So, you know, in rugby, you've got a mass of sweaty, silly people. They're the forwards, right? And they're all scrummaging or rucking. And they're, it's basically like, what did we used to call it? Rumbles, stacks on, you know, just throwing people on top of each other. The smart guys are the backs. They're the ones that stay away from all that mess and they just wait for the ball to get thrown out widely and then they get the glory, scoring in the corner and dust themselves down and don't get very dirty. And that's, that's you know, if you're smart where you play. But my two sons who are here this morning uh, have both played in the scrum, the forwards, the buffheads, the... the the, the pigs, as they're politely called, because you'll hear that term used on the rugby field. And, and they've also both played the position they called blindside flanker. So in the scrum, they've got, what, eight guys, and two of them on the sides are flankers, and one of them is called the blindside flanker because at any point you've got an open side of the field where the ball is most obviously going to come out and they're going to try and score a try. But if you're tricky, you might use the blindside, the narrow side. And so you can take... In fact, we could, to illustrate this better, I think we should have a scrum and push the chairs back a little. We could get 16 people, let's not be sexist, we get some ladies involved uh, and we could actually set two scrums and silly, and we'd probably cause some damage, but you wouldn't forget the analogy, you know, if we just had, anyway, all right, okay, we won't go any further with that, but... The point is you can take the opposition by surprise if you use the blind side. You can blindside them and use the side that people aren't expecting an attack on. And that's, of course, what the devil, the enemy, wants to do with us. He will use our blind side or our blind spot and get us to either feel terribly guilty about the sin that we are overwhelmed with or he will... Help, or he will work on, on trying to get us to ignore it or deflect from it so we don't ever identify and deal with the sin. And, we, and, when, and then we just carry on because we can uh, just keep then making the same mistakes and, um, and going over and over the same kind of issues. So how do we find out what we've done wrong? Well... There's a few different things. We can have self-awareness, but that's the weakest one because, as I said, we've got a propensity to, do, to ignore and deflect our own mistakes um, and, and our blind spot, like we've discussed, or we can rely on other people. Well, that's a bit problematic too because some people may not have your best interests at heart. And see, it's a little scary if you go and say, I was told when my pastor was preaching the other day that I'm a sinner. Could you help me identify my sins? And someone could say, I'd love to. And they write you this terribly long list. Oh, you know, and half of it's not true. They just don't like you. And then just, you know, crushes your soul. 
Um, but if people have our best interest at heart and we really know there's love there, then of course the Bible talks about the rebuke of a friend. It's like a kiss on, you know, it can be very helpful to actually learn and listen to people. Um, but even better, we can hear from God because the Holy Spirit, you know, He loves you and He lives with you, but that doesn't mean He just pats you on the back and just says, whispers sweet nothings, you know, and tells you everything's fine when it's not. Because if you look in John chapter 16, when Jesus was promising to send the Holy Spirit, look at what He said. He said, it's to your advantage. Uh, da, 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 da. If I don't go away... The helper will not come to you. So the helper is the Holy Spirit. The Greek word there can be translated advocate or counsellor or comforter. Now, of course, people think, oh, I like that, comforter. Yeah, let's just write comforter in there. Just comfort me. Just pat me on the back. Well, it, that's part of the word. But look what he says. If I go, I'll send him to you. And when he comes, he'll convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So he doesn't just come to pat us on the back. He comes to convict of sin. Notice there's a big difference between convict and condemn. There's no condemnation in Christ, the Bible tells us in the book of Romans. And so it's very important that you understand that, and that you know, if the Holy Spirit points out something that you've done wrong, he doesn't, the devil will try and condemn you. Maybe some people might try and condemn you. Even something in your own soul might be tempted to condemn you and wallow and feel terrible about it. But it's not the work of the Holy Spirit. He wants to help you. But in order to help you, he might actually show what you need to address. And sin isn't a terrible word that we can never use or never consider applying to our life. And neither should we be concerned about the word conviction. To be convicted is a good thing, you know, because people talk about, oh, I've got a conviction about that. What does that mean? It's a strong feeling that will help you do something. You know, I've got a, love, I've got a great conviction about helping children get a great education and so I'm going to go and become a school teacher. That's great. What a great conviction to carry through life. You know, conviction for some, you know, area of society that needs to be worked on and improved. And so conviction means it, it's a helpful thing, a strong drive in you to produce something great. That's exactly what it means when the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, not to beat us down but to help us. Amen. And then the other uh, part of what, um, oh, and also later on, look, it's only a few verses in that same chapter when Jesus speaking, I think it's verse 13, he says, and when he comes, the spirit of truth will guide you into all truth. Have you got that there? Verse, yeah, he'll guide you into all the truth. And so again, the Holy Spirit is there to help us and to guide us and to show us truth, even if it's a little uncomfortable, even if it's something in us that we don't want to take guidance in, we don't have to take it, but he will provide the guidance if we're humble and open for it. And then, of course, the other way God speaks to us about our sin is through the Bible. Because in Romans chapter 7, verse 7, Paul is talking about the Word of God and the law as they knew it, the, the, the written word at that time. And he says, is the law sinful? No. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So God provides principles for us to follow, laws, commandments. And then when we read it, we realise, oh, I'm not necessarily doing that. You know, so in that example, he's talking about coveting, wanting someone, something that is someone else's. 
and uh, the law says you don't, and then you realise, oh, I do, and it said I didn't, therefore I'm not doing the right, that's sin. And it's, and it, so that's, but he's saying that's helpful. And then again, if you look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, um, you may have heard the beginning of this quoted many times. Word of God is alive and full of power or very active. That's awesome, isn't it? Power of God's word. Sharper than any double-edged sword. But look, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. That's the word of God. Judging thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So when you read the word of God, of course you can be selective and just flip around and go, oh, I like that one and I'm going to read a psalm that I choose the encouraging words. When you read the entire word of God, there'll be times where it's judging your attitudes. It's reflecting on your thoughts. It's revealing what's going on on the inside and it's showing who you are in light of God's truth that comes from the word. So it reveals us for who we really are. And that's okay. That's okay. It's gone very quiet. <laughs> God loves you. Okay. Okay, it's all right. God doesn't hate you. It's all right. You're getting out of here soon. It's all right. Good. Get a coffee. If you're visiting, you mention get a free coffee. It's okay. It's okay. All right. Um, so we're talking about sin. Oh, it's awesome. We don't always talk like this. Could have come next week. And uh, I'll just tell you, God loves you in a million different ways. Um, and he does love you, but this is part of the love, Yeah. Uh, so, okay, so we're aware of our sin. What do we do with it? Well, we have a number of choices. As I've already discussed, the easiest one is the worst one, and that's to deflect and bluster and blame others and defend ourselves. And, and, and of course, the companion reaction to that, if someone else is involved in revealing your sin to you, is to get offended, you know, and, uh, and to just totally turn the tables and instead of realising, well, I could have done better there, it's like, oh, how dare they? Da, da, da. And then you carry that. And I've seen that sadly many, too many times where people will go on for years carrying, carrying an offence, taking an offence. I, I mean, we talk about taking offence and you really do. You really take it, don't you? You take it on board. We need to get rid of offence. We need to be unoffendable. We need to let, what do they say? Water off the duck's back, kind of just not get so offended. Um, and so it's very easy just to deflect from ourselves what God might be trying to show us and throw it out onto someone else who might be in the vicinity of, of that issue. The second problem that can easily be followed, the second way to deal with sin is to grovel in the ground and wallow in your sin and feel terrible about yourself and you get overwhelmed with a sin consciousness. And some churches have been guilty of beating people with a sort of a guilt about the sin and a, and a, a sort of a, a fear of God message that lacks a, a, a message of God's grace and compassion and forgiveness and mercy. And, um, and that's never our heart here, of course, if we're talking about sin today. It's always in, un, under the understanding, like I said, that God doesn't bring condemnation, just conviction. That God is, is willing and able to forgive us. And so that's the third option that we do with our sin. We go to God and this is the wonderful forgiveness and freedom that we find from our sin because if we look at First John, this is the same guy that was writing earlier about the passage with Jesus meeting the woman. John writes a letter years later to the churches in chapter 1 verse 8 and he says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That's what we've been talking about. But if we confess our sins, God's faithful and just and he will 
forgive us our sins and He will cleanse us or purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make Him out to be a liar and His Word is not in us. That's interesting. That's like I was saying from that passage from Hebrews. The Word in us will show us our sin. If we don't have the Word in us, it's not going to help us. not going to help us identify what needs to be adjusted and dealt with. So there you go. That's how you do, do it. You just got to bring your sins to God and forgive and, uh, and repent and we get forgiven and we get purified or cleansed, some translations say. Now, I love riding dirt bikes uh, and it's a lot of fun, but there are some downsides, one being uh, coming back and having to wash the bike and take it off and fix it up and repair it and prepare it for the next ride. But that's not the worst of it. Then you've got all the gear, the boots and the gloves and the goggles and all this stuff and you put all them away and pack everything away and check the tools. But that's not the worst of it. The worst of it all is the clothing because you sweat and you get muddy and you come home and they're stinking and dirty and sweaty. And so what do you do? Well, I could pretend that the clothes aren't dirty. I could just keep wearing them next time. I could leave them in a plastic bag in the car where they just sort of steam up and, you know, and just not look at them. And then I'd come out for a ride next time, put all my clothes on, and all the other guys when we're getting ready near the cars, putting out, you know, could just go, oh, brownie, what are you, it stinks, get away from us. And, uh, and then I could be very offended with them because they're pointing out how dirty my clothes are. So I could get upset and angry that they are telling me that my clothes need washing. Uh, alternatively, I could refuse to wash the clothes and then just feel very sorry for myself that my clothes are dirty. And that when I put the clothes on next time, I could say, look at me, i got dirty clothes. I'm terrible. Look, I'm hopeless. I can't even ride. I'm stupid. I'm everything. So the whole world, i got daggy, dirty clothes. Everyone's be like, well, why don't you just... So you, you can hear what I'm saying. These are ridiculous options. But that's what some people do with their sin. They ignore the sin and get offended if people sort of realise or notice that there's filth and dirt going on or they wallow in the sin and almost wear it as a badge of honour in a sense of, oh, this is my lot in life, I'm a terrible sinner. So that's not what I do with my motorbike clothes. What do I do? I take them home and I give them to Ruth. I mean, I mean, sorry, it's the 21st century. What am I saying? <laughs> I put them in the wash. Okay, okay. Now listen, I, I do often give them to Ruth. Now listen, it's not because I can't wash them and put them in a washing machine. It's because I've been known to mix the coloures with the whites. Worse than that, no, it wasn't deliberate. I've also been known lately to put a few too many things in the dryer for too long. So I ruined one of Bethany's tops. Justin basically has got long sleeve shirts for his work that are now all short sleeve <laughs> that he's got to give to the 12 year old apprentice at work because they're all, so his long pants are now shorts. And so I, I thought I'd help him out by chucking his clothes in the dryer, all his work clothes. Um, so, so yes, my wife often does the washing, not because I can't or don't want to, but because she, <laughs> because I can't, <laughs> because I don't want to, that should be qualified, because I'm hopeless. Uh, anyway, back to the Bible and the analogy, the point is, you're like Jesus. Thank you, darling. The analogy, you like that? I come 
I come to the foot of the cross. The, I, I kneel on the foot of the wife and say, darling, please, would you wash my clothes? And so the clothes get washed. The dirt is removed. They're washed. The clothes look fresh and new again. And that's exactly what happens when we go to the cross and bring our filthy, dirty rags to Jesus. Amen. He's willing and waiting to forgive us and cleanse us. And in fact, if you look at the very next verse in that passage we just read, you know, 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, 9, 10, chapter 2, there were no chapters, you realise, in the original letter. So it just goes straight on. And he says, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, and he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. And so that is a serious washing machine in a spiritual sense, right? Jesus is amazing, wonderful. It's simple. But let's just come back to Jesus and the woman. He refuses to condemn her, but notice he still calls her out about her sin. He says, go and leave your life of sin or sin no more. Implication there, people have taken and said, oh, well, she must have been a prostitute, possibly, because a life of sin, maybe. Well, Whatever, he still doesn't ignore the sin. He tells her that in the future, you can do better. Now, he could have ignored this part of it. He could have just sent her on away, knowing that she would live the same way she had before. But he knows that if he points out her sin, it might be uncomfortable, it might even be painful, but it's good. So forgiveness doesn't just mean absolving the conscience and then doing nothing else in the future. Forgiveness comes from God with a package of power for overcoming the sin so that we can empower to do better, to change, to become more godly. This is the work of sanctification. Yeah, so as we go through life, we're walking towards God and we are walking towards godliness. We're not perfect. We'll never be this side of the pearly gates, but we are becoming more like Jesus. There is a quest for holiness that he helps us with, the Holy Spirit works on. And so we make better decisions to live a better life. And he's showing us our sin, not to make us feel bad, but so that we can be forgiven, empowered, and to overcome and to live better. And just quickly, an example of that is the rich young ruler. You know, the guy that was wealthy, he came to Jesus and he said, what am I doing? Everything okay? Good? Jesus said, you, you obey all the commandments? Yeah, 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 great. He says, oh, you've just got one more thing, sell everything and give it all to the poor and then follow me. Oh, well, that's a bit nitpicky. I mean, you know, the guy's doing everything well and he was hoping Jesus would just affirm him and say, keep going, it's all good. And in fact, he hadn't even come to Jesus. He could have had a great life and he could have, you know, he was doing the right thing. He was rich, he was young, he's a ruler. So he's got influence, he's having a great time. So Jesus is a bit of a party pooper here. Is he coming along and Jesus says, oh no, you've got to sell up, give it all away. Well, of course, Jesus didn't say that to every rich person. It's not the riches that the problem. It's not, it's the fact that the riches, you know, had this guy's heart and that it was a sin for him because it had become mammon, a God, little G, instead of the one true God. And so Jesus identified that. Of course, the guy went away sad. And my point is that identifying sin can be a sad experience, but for our good, because the guy needed to address it. It wasn't just Jesus saying, oh yeah, well that's good enough, fine for you. No, as upsetting as it was, he was only helping the guy to figure out the one thing that he really needed to deal with so that he could be closer to God. Less money, more eternal life. It's an easy equation. 
And of course, God would have looked after him if he obeyed. And we're told, we don't know this in the Bible, but we're told through church tradition that uh, this guy did repent, did sell and turn to and follow Jesus and that, he be, that he was actually Barnabas, who was known as a wonderful uh, worker for the Lord, servant of God who helped release Paul the Apostle into his worldwide ministry. Uh, but, you know, so easy. You know, when he comes to Jesus, Jesus could have just said, you're fine, you're great, you know, you're doing well. Because the guy was, the guy was doing okay. Jesus could have said, oh, no, you're good. Have you, I mean, look at Peter. You know, I've got some issues with some of these guys. Have you met Judas? I've got a funny feeling about Judas. I don't, you know, I, but this guy, you know, but you hear my point. Jesus comes in and is, it can be initially upsetting when we find out about sin. But if it's revealed in our life, whenever a blind spot is recognised, when Jesus points out that one thing that's in the way of a deeper relationship with God, don't freak out. Don't ignore it. Don't suffer under condemnation. Just repent. It just means to turn around. That's what the word repent means. To turn from sin, turn to God. Ah, oh, And there we find forgiveness, freedom and fellowship with the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. We hope you've enjoyed this week's sermon. For more information or to contact us, visit c3church.narara.net.